Hi, my name is Dawn Long. I started this podcast to share not only my story, but to share others' untold stories, to share the truth and journey of healing, so I can show you that it is safe to do the same. We are transforming and healing together. This show is about the heart-centered transformation for you, for me, and the world. This is the Your Transformation Journey show, and this is our journey together. Let's begin. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Your Transformation Journey. And today is our guest, Marjorie Anos, and she is a Ph.D., She is a single mother by choice. She is living with spinal cord injury, and she is also a psychologist, award-winning inspirational speaker, author, and researcher from Montreal, Canada. Her life has been derailed as she was in a car accident that was rendered her paraplegic in one instance. Her son was 16 months old. And long journey through rehab and return to community that led her to a second crash. This one, a mental one. She couldn't keep her expectations due to her being in a wheelchair. And so she broke. Until she started learning about positive psychology and the science of character strengths. Now, 10 years after her accident, she is trying not to get in her own way of reconstructing and recalibrating her life. She wants to coach people and show them the power that we all have. And she wants to inspire through her speeches and upcoming book memoir. She is in that transformation process. She is still the butterfly in the cocoon. And she would love to talk with you and see how her story helps you. Welcome, Marjorie, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Don. You are welcome. So I always ask people, what got you started doing with what you're doing? But you pretty much laid it out there. So let's really talk about your life before the accident. What happened in your life before then and then leading up to it? Yeah. So, I mean, I thought I had everything figured out before my accident. I, you know, had a great career. I was a psychologist. I was also a manager in a healthcare facility, a rehabilitation center, actually, um, for people who have an, uh, an intellectual disability. And I, you know, was going to work, um, doing my thing. I had a child, decided to have a child on my own uh, for different reasons. And um, I was, you know, a mom to to him and working and spending time with my family and spending time with my friends on weekends as well. And so um, that's it. I was taking care of my house, my kid, and uh, going to work and, and just loving life and and loving life very full pin because it was like it was a fast paced life. I was busy doing a whole bunch of different things. So what happened after you had the accident? What what was really going through your mind when you found out that you can no longer walk? Yeah, um, I think the first the first reaction was definitely sort of like, what? Say what? You mean, you know, like 
eight hours ago or six hours ago, I, I was still walking. I had like everything figured out. Um, and now I had to, like, I didn't even know what that meant. I mean, for, for sure, I had seen people in wheelchairs before, you know, some of my clients used wheelchair, but it was sort of like um, difficult to understand, you know, because paraplegia, for example, is not just about not walking. It affects like every organ that's below the injury. So in my case, everything below my armpits to my toes basically no longer talks to my brain and my brain can't talk to it. Um, and so, you know, like bowels and bladder and, um, you know, if you hurt yourself, you don't know because you don't feel the pain. So there's like many different things that affected um, my life, which I didn't know at first. And it was just, uh, you know, big shock. And then I had to relearn everything. That's pretty much what, uh, what it was. Really. Yeah. And relearning also, you also had a little one to take care of in the middle of all that. So how, how did that change? Yeah. Well, the first thing, because I had to relearn and I had to, like my body was in shock. So I was one month in the hospital and then I was five months in, in rehab, in a rehab facility to relearn all of this, which meant that my son couldn't be with me for six months. And he was 16 months old, so pretty young. Um, so my parents had to move in my house, um, take care of Thomas, my son. And because, you know, they, I mean, I had lived, survived the car accident because I wanted to be his mom. And so my parents knew of how important he was or central he was in my life. Um, and so they said, every day we're going to bring him to you so that he doesn't forget because at that age, he could have easily forgotten who his mom was because my mom basically was like mom figure. Um, and so every day they would bring him after his nap to like um, supper time, basically. And then we used also iPad technology so that I could eat breakfast with him or I could see him in the bath. Um, to stay connected because that was like super important to to keep that connection. Um, and then as soon as I was, you know, able to sort of move um, more easily, well, during the weekend, I would get permissions where I was allowed to leave for the day. And then we would do activities together with my parents, obviously, because I couldn't drive anymore and I couldn't uh, sort of run after him. But um, yeah, we found different ways. That's awesome. And when you go through things like that, you're obviously in survival mode. And then you talk about the mental crash that comes after it. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the first five years after my accident, I was basically sort of like denial, like you mentioned. Um where to me, it was sort of like, I'm going to do it, everything like before, not realizing how taxing that was on my body. So I fatigue more, I have less demeanor, I, I get chronic pain, um, you know, and then muscular pain, because I only use my shoulders and my arms, so they hurt very easily. Um, so I kept continuing and having all of those health issues on top of that. 
um, until I realized that I couldn't keep up sort of going to work full time and raising Thomas and taking care of the house and, and, you know, changing the tire on the, the car come winter time and so forth. And, um, that's when, you know, I couldn't deny it anymore because my body wasn't following. And so my, my brain just shut down and I, um, I became like depressed and I had a post-traumatic delayed type of response to the accident and this time it wasn't so much physical it was sort of more mental health related yeah and that i think for some people can be the hardest is the mental health part of it and that's something a lot of people don't talk about because it is so hard but you're also so vulnerable whenever you do talk about those things because a lot of people are going to like, but you have all of this support. And sometimes, yes, we have that support. But at the same time, just like you were saying, we still think we can do all of the things. And we realize we really can't And learning how to ask for help. Yeah. For me, it was really sort of like, um, yeah, realizing that, you know, there were, a lot of different little losses. You know, I couldn't like go to the arena to see my son skate on my own because not every arena has a ramp for me to get into. Or, you know, in the winter time when there's snow on the ground, uh, playing in the snow, making a snowman. I mean, that's very difficult for me. Uh, not impossible, but really difficult and very taxing. Um, and so it was all those little losses that accumulated. Um, and for sure, I could say, and people would have said, you know, oh, well, you could do things differently. And yes, I could do things differently, but it was sort of like doing it on my own that I wanted to do it. I mean, I, I had a child on my own, so I, I was pretty independent. Um, I was also, and I still am actually, I, I'm a psychologist. And so uh, you talk about the stigma of mental health. I, I think for me, it was you know, on top, because I was a psychologist, and I couldn't like sort of take care of my own mental health, you know, like the stigma was felt more important um, for me, because I was sort of like in the healthcare, and, um, and I couldn't prevent it, and I couldn't get out of it. Um, I was in major depression. I mean, pretty much for like four years, it took a long time for me to start feeling a little bit more empowered. And I only got, you know, uh, more empowered in the last year. Yeah. So how as a psychologist, because you bring up a good point, how do you talk to your peers about the things that you're going through? Yeah. So of course, like when I, I was diagnosed with uh, major depression and anxiety, um, I went to therapy. And so every week I would go, um, you know, I think that in, in those cases, I mean, you're basically talking to your psychologist and it's irrelevant if you're a psychologist yourself. Um, I think maybe there's more pressure on the psychologist knowing that I'm a psychologist and maybe I could, but I wasn't there as a psychologist sort of, you know, uh, commenting on her performance. I was really like suffering. So um, it was like any other type of relationship. But for the longest time, I hid it. Actually, it's only, I would say this year that I've been sort of acknowledging it in public that, um, 
I w- I had major depression and, and anxiety because um, I was a bit ashamed um, of it and I didn't know how to talk about it. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about it from that standpoint, because of all of the things that's went on the last couple of years, yeah. I know a lot of healthcare providers are experiencing mental fatigue. And when you are dealing with all of this stuff and we have a tendency if we're in a profession that we can recognize everybody else's, but sometimes we take a while to recognize our own. So what do you say for doctors that are really going through the mental health crisis right now? Because I know a lot of them probably are. But they're probably wanting to say, nope, I can't talk about it or I want to be valiant about it. What is your feedback for them and say, what do you recommend for them to do so that they don't end up suffering like you did for three or four years? Yeah. For me, what really made the difference um, is I learned um, mindfulness and meditation and you know, it's having sort of that time where you quiet everything around you and you're able to get yourself centered. To me, that really made the difference. And, you know, um, when I feel very anxious, for example, because I still sort of struggle with that, um, you know, with mindfulness, because you sort of might focus on sensations um you know, touch or smells or your breath, how it feels, it really helped me center. And so not focus so much on the fact that I I was having difficulty sort of breathing or uh, had running thoughts in my head. The fact that I started doing that and having a routine allowed me, I think, to, to better sort of handle when triggers come my way or new losses I feel those or I get sort of um, a post-traumatic response to to yet another loss or to a loss that I feel I'm losing again for some reason at that moment. Um, it's not, you know, rocket science in that we've been talking about self-care and, and to me, meditation and mindfulness is definitely part of that routine. Um, but for people who are used to being the one offering help. It's it's having sort of the humility to also say, I can be receiving of help um, as well and sort of accept that part, which for me was like really difficult. Yeah, and it is because, and you're right, because of the profession. And when we find ourselves in that, it does take, okay, I know that I need some help. So I need to find somebody and talk about it. And you also have another outlet that you are currently, is the book out now or is it still on its way out? Um, On the way out. Yes. It's on its way out. So let's talk about that. What is the title of your book? Yes, it's called Mom on Wheels, which is basically <laughs> defines what uh, what I, I am for the past 10 mm-hmm. years. Um, yeah, and for me, it was really sort of writing, um, you know, writing my stories and sharing. And there was like something that was very cathartic to putting my losses on paper and 
um, also sometimes reflecting upon sort of the healthcare system and, and the impact that it has on, on the patient. Because all of a sudden, I was sort of like the patient, but in my head, I was still a professional. And so I could sort of, you know, have both of those stories sort of side by side, and I would connect both and sort of see, you know, uh, a similar story, but with different perspective, all at, at the same time. Um, so sharing stories through the book, or through like inspirational speaking, definitely, definitely helped as well. Um, and actually, like right now, I'm taking a, a course called narrative based medicine. And it really talks about sort of the power of narrating and and writing those stories to, to figure out what we need, to, you know, the lessons we need to learn or, or the different perspective that we need to sort of learn to see, which is um, very empowering, actually. Definitely. And I love reading books from medical professionals that have went through some really horrendous medical things of their own. Um, my favorite book is Proof of Heaven by Dr. Eben Alexander. And he was, he was a neurosurgeon. And to hear him write his story and write it in such a manner to where he could preface it from the doctor's standpoint. And when he came out of, I don't know if you've ever read the book, but if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Um, it's interesting to hear from his perspective because he had E. coli meningitis and uh, something he never should have ever came back from. And he came back from it. He was in coma, I think, for five or seven days. And he was explaining all of the things that went on in his brain and what shut down. And he's going like, in all honesty, if I would have read this medical record, which was his, he said, I would tell you the patient will not live. And to hear that and to go through it from an analytical standpoint, like you're talking about, and they're like, okay, well, this is the doctor point of view, but now I'm the patient and I survived it. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to read those books and I get a lot of value from reading from books like that, that doctors and now they're going through some of the things that their patients have went through. And I think that gives them a better understanding of how to help that patient because now you've been through and are going through your own healing process. So now when you're able to talk to a patient you're going to like, I understand what you're going through. Now you've got that experience under your belt. And I'm not saying all doctors need to go through the stuff that y'all are going through to have that empathy, but it does bring a different perspective because of your experience. Yeah. Like an example for me, uh, my expertise, the, the place that I studied, you know, I did my doctorate um, in the field of parenting with a disability an intellectual disability, but a disability. And so in a way it was ironic that when I was a single mom, like most of the moms that I supported uh, clinically, um, I became a mom with a disability as well. And so it was sort of like understanding the notion of support, understanding also how, you know, um, what we called ableism can have an impact on how people sort of 
treat you or might treat you differently or talk to you differently because all of a sudden you're in a chair. You know, um, I've been to doctor's appointment with my mom and my son about my son and had sort of like nurses look at my mom to answer. Um, and my mom sort of saying, no, no, the mom is like, and point down sort of like at me sitting in the chair, but they went straight to the person that they were, you know, at eye level with not thinking that I could be the person sort of taking care of a child. So all those preconceptions or, or misconceptions, I would say, um, you know, it's, it's very sort of like it hits you. Um, and it's interesting when you have the ability to reflect upon them and, and see how we might do things a little bit differently now. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. There was um, one of the companies I used to work for. They had brought in a gentleman that could not see. And it was interesting. It was a leadership building experience. And we got to be blindfolded. Oh, yeah. And when you go through that experience and you have somebody else guide you or help you, and it's just like you were talking about that independence. I was going like, I didn't want to let go and have somebody guide me. I wanted to do it on my own. And I'm going like, oh. So I had to learn how to step back. And then, you know, one of the questions he was asked is, well, what kind of help would you like? Or how would you like for somebody to approach you to ask for help? And he's going like, all you got to do is ask whether I want help or not. That's it. Yeah. And he said, I'll tell you yes or no. Yeah. And, and he was going like, people are so scared and so afraid, or you got people that want to be the helpers, but without realizing that they're actually being more detrimental than actually helping that it turns into a push pull tug situation. And he said, it just takes a little bit of dialogue and a little bit of talking to understand what the expectations are because everybody is going to be different. Some people might want more help. Some people not so much. And I would say also that the situation might warrant some help and other time not. I mean, yeah. if I go to the grocery store, you know, if everything goes well, I don't need any help. But if I have sort of a bag of flour that's a little bit heavier than I could carry, um, for some reason, right, uh, then I might, you know, be welcoming of the help that I, that I receive. One of the things that I hate as a person in a wheelchair is when people, you know, think that they need to push me. <laughs> and so they'll just grab my handle and push me. And I, and I will often, as a joke, but sort of sending a message as I say that, I don't like to be pushed around. Um, you know, like most people don't like to be pushed around either. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, your story, I totally relate to that. Definitely. Yeah. And it was definitely, and no pun intended, but it was definitely eye opening for me um, because we, and especially being for me, I was raised in the South in the United States. So the South has a tendency when you're raised in that environment that you help people, that you're hospitable and, you know, learning how to, okay, understand that not everybody wants your type of help and learning how to ask of what kind of help. That's what was eye opening to me because 
we were trained from a very young age, you know, you, you help everybody. So it's learning how to ask those questions. And especially when you're in a medical situation and you're trying to take care of your son, I think as a mother, I would be a little bit frustrated myself because hello, you're right. I'm right here. So you talk to me. So yeah, I can definitely get that. So as we get ready to wrap up, I always ask my guest, what is one last nugget that you can give our listeners? Well, that to me would be sort of what we talked about, um, you know, in the intro about character strength and positive psychology. Um, I learned about character strength, the fact that we have 24 strengths that everybody can tap into. We all have that um, in us. Um, that really helped reframe for me different situations. So an example, I often, you know, when I was in, in depression, um, in, in the big of it, I would say, um, you know, that the accident happened to me and it was sort of like I was hopeless and helpless and powerless in the car. Um, I couldn't do anything to sort of save, save myself because I couldn't move in the car. Um, but learning about character strength, I was able to reframe and sort of say, you know, I actually did something. I, I asked to live first when I saw that I was going to um, be in a car accident. I asked to live because I, I really did think that I was going to die um, out of love for my son. So I was able to power that character strength of love, which is incredibly powerful. Um, and I'm sure that it's what helped me survive. And then once I realized that I couldn't move my legs, and at first I couldn't move my arms either, um, I used my strength of prudence. And prudence, you know, taught me to sort of say something went wrong, really terrible. If you don't want to get more injured, stop moving, wait for, for the help to come, the EMTs to come. Um, and so all my stories, all of a sudden, as I was learning to, to re-narrate those stories using character strength, it really gave me that power that I thought I had lost in the, the accidents ever since. And so that nugget uh, for anybody who wants to learn more about those character strengths, I would say go on the VIA Institute, V-I-A Institute, um, dot org, org, I believe, um, you could take a survey. It's a few hundred questions. You could have sort of like your, your top strength, the ones you use the most, um, and then all of the others, and you could learn more about that and feel empowered, hopefully, like I did. That's awesome. Yes. Cause we do all have those character strengths and I do believe that our soul we know when we still want to stick around and we know our exit points. So when we are in those situations like that, I do believe that there is a reason why you're still here and you're going to impact so many people. If you haven't already, you probably already have, but you're probably going to impact even more because let's face it. Life will throw us curveballs period. And none of us are going to leave this earth without at least a curveball or two. Yeah. 
And some of those curveballs might be a little bit more than we're going like, what the world? And having people that have been through some of the things that you have is an inspiration. And you're right, you are a butterfly, but I think you're out of that cocoon. And I think you're showing your colors really proudly. And it's awesome to see. And it's awesome to see the transformation that has taken place because you're able to take what a lot of people probably could have turned them bitter for a very long time into something that is changing people's lives and changing your life as well. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, yeah, it's it's one day at a time, but um, yeah. we can all do it. And, and I think that that's uh, important. And sharing my story was healing for me. And I hope that, you know, it touches other people um, at the same time. I think it definitely will. So for everybody watching, where else can they find you? I know I have your Instagram rolling through, but where else can they find you? Yeah. I'm also on LinkedIn. If um, they go there on Facebook as well and on Twitter. And most of my handles go by uh, Ninja March. That was a nickname that was given to me after my accident. And so it's something that's very precious to me. I love, I love the handle. I was going to ask you how you came up with that handle, but that is pretty, pretty awesome. And when can they expect the book release? By the end of May. So I'm really, really is coming up and uh, we're looking at book covers right now. So it's really exciting. That's awesome. So Marjorie, I uh, loved having you on here and you are an inspiration. And for those that know how I love to sign off, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are loved. You are the beacon of hope and you are unstoppable. Everyone have a good night and I will see you back here next Thursday. Have a good one, y'all. Bye. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. To support the podcast, join our Patreon account through Podbean at Your Transformation Journey. Or if you liked this episode, send us a review through iTunes and follow us on Podbean. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and also at my website at www.donglongcoach.com. Remember, you are unstoppable. Thank you